Have you heard about our latest subscription offer? Subscribe to an Irish Examiner annual subscription today and receive a free pair of OneSonic earphones valued at $79.99. Stay informed with our award-winning journalism and enjoy your favourite podcasts in premium sound. Visit irishexaminer.com forward slash earphones to subscribe now. Hurry, this offer won't last long. Terms and conditions apply. Offer available while stocks last. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, on the 31st of March 1976, the Cork Dublin mail train was robbed after being stopped under false pretenses near Salins in County Kildare. The exact amount of money stolen is disputed, but most estimates have put it at around £200,000, a huge sum at the time that would, I'd suggest, equate to well over €1 million Euro today. At the time, the troubles in the North were raging and a number of subversive groups were robbing banks in order to raise funds. Immediately after the robbery, the Gardaí suspected subversives were responsible. And, to be fair, that was a reasonable supposition. No criminal gang at the time would likely have been capable of such an operation. It should also be stated here that sometime later, after the events we're going to talk about in this podcast, the IRA did claim responsibility for the robbery. Having said that, Nobody in the IRA was ever apprehended or convicted of it. Anyway, acting on what one senior Garda later described as confidential information, the Garda arrested a number of activists of the political party, the IRSP, the Irish Republican Socialist Party, which was a breakaway from official Sinn Féin, which itself was the product of the split with provisional Sinn Féin. And provisional Sinn Féin, as it then was, is the entity, and was the entity, sorry, that is today known simply as Sinn Féin. As we know, one of the biggest political parties in the country. Anyway, these men were known political activists, but have always stated that they were not part of any subversive group, and no evidence was ever offered to suggest that they were these men who were arrested. They were taken in for questioning. After a protracted period, three of them were charged with the robbery. Nicky Kelly, Oscar Brannock and Brian McNally. The only evidence against them were confessions that they gave while in custody. All three, along with other members of their party who had been arrested, subsequently stated that they had been put under extreme duress, which included repeated beatings from members of the Gardaí and that it was as a result of that that the three confessions were given 
by the men who were charged. The Gardaí have always denied this, but there was medical evidence that the men had some serious injuries. At a later court case, it was suggested that the men had beaten each other up while in cells, although one of them was in a cell on his own. None of the Gardaí were ever charged with anything in connection with the case. The trial of the three men that ultimately took place was held in the non-jury special criminal court. The first trial, as it was, lasted 65 days and was abandoned when one of the judges, William O'Connor, died. Now, during that trial, over the months preceding his death, Judge O'Connor had fallen asleep on a number of occasions. The defence pointed this out ultimately and made objections. Yet all three judges, including Judge O'Connor, denied that he had been asleep. An action was subsequently taken to the High Court over this and the High Court judge agreed with his three colleagues. Subsequently that was appealed and at the Supreme Court three other judges also ruled that Judge O'Connor had not been asleep. These rulings were in conflict with what witnesses in the court, including journalists and other lawyers, said was as plain as day and that was that Judge O'Connor had been asleep and the unfortunate Judge O'Connor's death perhaps showed that quite obviously the poor man had been dying at the time and in all likelihood he certainly had lost consciousness in some form or another during that period at various points. In the end, there was a second trial at which the three men were convicted of the robbery. By then, Nicky Kelly had jumped bail, Oscar Brannock was sentenced to 12 years and Brian McNally to nine and Nicky Kelly in absentia was also sentenced to 12 years. Nearly 18 months later, McNally and Brannock were released when an appeal court ruled that the confessions they had given had been extracted through oppression, although the nature of this oppression was never ruled on. Nicky Kelly returned after that, but he wasn't released on appeal as the others had been. He was eventually released on compassionate grounds after he went on hunger strike. All three of the men brought civil actions and settlements were made with them by the state in the early 90s. And around that time, Nicky Kelly uh, received a presidential pardon for his conviction, which, because he had been released on appeal, had stood. That's the bones of uh, this uh, quite unbelievable case. In some ways, it has been the subject of a number of books and uh, an awful lot of debate at various points. And many observers of politics, policing and the criminal justice system in this country maintain that it was probably the most shocking example of a miscarriage of justice in the last 50 years at least, if not in the history of the state, considering all that was involved. Huge questions remain unanswered. Despite that, there has never been any form of an inquiry to determine what went wrong, who was culpable and what actually happened to determine as a matter of fact. Since soon after his initial arrest, Oscar Brannock has been pursuing an inquiry into the matter. He is still doing so today and his quest has attracted support from many quarters across politics, public life and entertainment. His solicitor in 1976 was Pat McCartan who went on to serve as a circuit court judge and is now retired. He is a patron of the campaign as are uh, singer Christy Moore, for instance, and former UN coordinator in Iraq, Dennis Halliday, and a number of other individuals. I caught up with Oscar Brannock earlier this week, 
and began by asking him why he thinks that after all these years there should still be a public inquiry about events that happened 45 years ago. Well, they're not just uh, about uh, what happened in 1976. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, uh, every morning that I wake up, uh, I am being abused again by the refusal of the state to hold an inquiry, which they are obligated to hold by European law and by international law. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. They have an obligation as far as you're concerned. It shouldn't be a case of you looking for an inquiry, but they're obliged to do it one way or the other. Well, I saw it as, as soon as uh, I got access to a solicitor when I was in the bridal in 1976, having been kidnapped and detained for three days, uh, I immediately uh, asked uh, them and others to contact Amnesty International to uh, make a formal complaint, uh, which they took on board And uh, in 1977 when they came to Ireland to do a special investigation into the behaviour of the uh, state in relation to prisoners <clears throat> and the uh, Special Criminal Court. Uh, you can read the documentation. Uh, it's online in uh, my website, uh, salinsinquirynow.ie. You can read it in full there. And it does specifically reference my case, not by name, but uh, it's marked out and it's clear that it's referring to me. And ever since uh, 1976, in fact, a few days after uh, news uh, got out about the uh, torture that was going on in the Bridewell, the uh, Amnesty International were on record calling to the Irish government to hold an inquiry. Since then, they were joined by the Irish Council of Civil Liberties, which was established Uh, very much on the back of the Salins case and has been joined since over the years uh, by politicians, musicians, uh, actors, uh, human rights organisations, presidents, Irish presidents, uh, not only in this country uh, but abroad, all calling uh, for an impartial or independent public inquiry, which which the Irish government are obligated uh, legally obligated because they've signed uh, conventions uh, with the UN and with the European Court of Human Rights. Right, and one thing I think that arises, and I think this perhaps uh, people will be familiar with this because it was in the news relatively recently, and that is the case of the hooded men in the north, and that was where a number of individuals were subjected to torture by the British forces there in the early 70s. And one element to that case is that the Irish government has supported their call for an inquiry and has continued to do so over the year. Yet it would seem that in this case, uh, in some ways, a similar type case, but one that happened within the Irish state, the government don't appear to have any interest in inquiring into that. But the Irish government were absolutely correct in taking the case against the British government. And they have been, uh, and they are absolutely correct in supporting the hooded men Uh, who are uh, campaigning uh, to get an an independent uh, inquiry into their torture. Uh, Ironically, the hooded men are supporting my applications and my campaign for an independent inquiry. Uh, And uh, it is uh, obviously totally hypocritical for the Irish government to be doing that on one side of the border and on the other granting uh, a de facto amnesty uh, to everyone who was involved uh, in the silence case cover-up. There was two main 
parts to the ordeal that you and the others who went through it at the time. One involved uh, what happened in terms of guard custody and the second was the legal process that involved a uh, trial in the Special Criminal Court and there was various aspects to that. Um, but just touching on the um, what happened particularly in the guard station, it's over 40, it is, well, nearly 45 years ago, but you still suffer post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of what went on over those three days. Uh, yes, and uh, that is the third element, uh, you know, is the after effects of all this, not only on society and not only on international society, because the British government has used previous uh, findings uh, in relation to torture in the North uh, as being um, not defined as torture, as an excuse uh, to use the same uh, behaviour and ill-treatment uh, in uh, Abu Ghabi or whatever it's called and various other places. So the effects of uh, torture uh, and the opposition to torture is universal. And it's universal because if it manifests and grows in one country, bit by bit, it seeps into other countries. So it has an international flavour uh, and uh, aspect to it. Uh, in my own case, uh, it has uh, health repercussions. So I am locked emotionally into a response, an emotional response to what's happened, what happened to me, not just in the Bridewell, but uh, in the uh, Special Criminal Court, uh, in jail and so forth. Uh, and I'm locked into that. And I can't uh, psychologically deal with that. It's not just me. No human being can, unless those issues are resolved. And the people who are stopping that issue from being resolved uh, are the Irish state. And when these events occurred, you, you were in your, in your mid-twenties, you were working as a journalist, you obviously had the same expectations anybody would have had at that stage of life, and perhaps higher expectations to the extent that I think you were considered to be pretty skilled at what you were doing. You, you were also involved in politics, and you had a huge interest in that. And those three days and what flowed from them, they changed the whole course of your life. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. I was uh, 24 years old. Um, I was the editor of a newspaper, uh, which at that age was great. I was getting great experience. Uh, I wrote articles, I designed the paper, I did the layout, I uh, even did drawings, cartoons uh, and so forth. Um, and um, I, I was happy as Larry, you might say. I was writing about the peace process, which I supported at that time even. Um, I was writing about the activities of the Garla Heavy Gang, which were busy all over the country women's rights, travellers' rights, uh, basically the rights of marginalised people, mass unemployment, emigration, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, suddenly I was grabbed and snatched and uh, taken off to the Bridewell, where I was refused access to legal counsel, which I knew I was entitled to. And uh, in the small hours of the morning, um, I woke in my cell at, uh, early in the morning, and rather than waking from a nightmare, I actually woke and went into a nightmare where I was brought into a tunnel that ran between the Bridewell Garda station and the nearby district court. And uh, I remember when I saw the gate was closed uh, halfway down the tunnel, 
that I knew I was going to be assaulted and beaten. There were a number of detectives there. And basically, they just laid into me, insinuated I was, uh, I'd taken part in a robbery, uh, had a list uh, of uh, activities I was supposed to have uh, carried on that other people had carried on. They had a list of names uh, that they wanted me to uh, agree was there um, because they believed, um, I've discovered afterwards, that uh, they believed that whoever was mentioned uh, verbally or in writing could be themselves charged. So I was so traumatised uh, as a result of the uh, beatings and insults and slaps and threats to arrest my uh, wife and uh, that uh, I eventually agreed to, uh, to account for my movements. Now I was of the belief at the time, uh, I wasn't 100% certain, but I was of the belief that uh, a European court ruling uh, had uh, indicated that this was not required, that it was contrary to, uh, to law to demand that somebody account for their movements. But anyway, I accounted for my movements. I said I was at home. They were talking about, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning. I said I was home in bed with my wife. They said, you don't want to drag her into it now, uh, which I took to be and uh, understood to be a threat to arrest her. Uh, they continued to uh, beat me, not only in the tunnel, but uh, then I was moved to a locker room upstairs in the Bridewell station proper, and I was assaulted by numerous uh, detectives there who kept uh, repeating a litany of names uh, they wanted me to agree to. And eventually, uh, after more beatings and so forth, uh, a statement was concocted by the Gardaí, uh, which I assented to sign and which I did. And when I was put back in my cell, I was so traumatised and believed they had indicated that they would fill in the gaps later. I took that to be that they would force me, or try to force me, to name other people. They had a prepared list of people. And I considered hanging myself in my cell because I didn't feel that I was strong enough to be able to withstand that. And I couldn't live with myself if I was going to be party to uh, sending innocent people to jail. Yeah, and as you see, a lot of that has been documented by others at what you were subjected to at the time. Just moving it forward a small bit to the trial, and there was a whole process there. There was serious issues around the process. There was, I think it's fair to say that it was flawed in many ways. In any event, towards the end of the trial, it certainly looked to any observers, as I understand it, that there was no question but there would be a guilty verdict in this, notwithstanding uh, evidence that suggested you were innocent. At that stage, your co-accused, Nicky Kelly, um, decided that he wasn't hanging around for that as far as he was concerned, and he took off and went to the USA. Did you consider that at the time? I have, uh, my mother was uh, Spanish-German. Uh, I have family in Spain. Uh, Spain had no extradition with Ireland. I did consider going to Spain, jumping bail and going to Spain. The Special Criminal Court had a reputation of being a sentencing tribunal at the time. Those are the exact words used by Mary Robinson when she wrote a thesis on the Special Criminal Court. I believed from day one that uh, we would be convicted because otherwise it meant the finger would be pointed at the guards for what they did. So the only way of removing that finger away from the guards was to convict us. I had already initiated a civil action for damages and that was to force the K 
case to come before a jury, uh, which I knew obviously there was no jury in the Special Criminal Court. But I decided uh, that I had opposed the Special Criminal Court when it was introduced. I had campaigned on human rights. And I didn't think the response of a human rights activist was to run away. So I decided that I would stay in the belief, in fact, that I would get 20 years. And I think you were sentenced to 12, wasn't it? I was sentenced to 12. And you, you, went, you, you went to prison then until such time as the uh, Court of Appeal ultimately freed yourself and Brian McNally. Just, uh, you were over a year in prison waiting for that verdict in, in Port Leash at the time, Oscar, am I correct there? Uh, yes, uh, there was an extraordinary delay in preparing the um, trial transcript, which is uh, required for an appeal. And uh, one of the excuses given at one stage was that the photocopying machines in the department were broken. That was an actual excuse yeah. that was given in why it was taking so long. In writing. Why yourself and Brian McNally were serving time, serving yes. prison sentence? Yes. And uh, eventually, uh, there was at that time an international campaign going on for our release. And uh, 17 and a half months later, the uh, appeal was heard. It was attended by numerous uh, international human rights observers. This had been uh, the first time that uh, observers, uh, it's kind of common now that observers turn up at trials and so forth, particularly high profile trials. But uh, at that time it was something new, as indeed was the way we had responded to the special criminal court. Uh, Republicans in general tended to say I refused to recognise the court and there was no real trial and they were sent off, uh, a lot of them innocent. So uh, we took the decision that we would argue uh, every dot and every comma and use it to expose both the Special Criminal Court and the Gardaí, uh, one or other had to come out of it in bad light. Uh, Amnesty International uh, said I never got a fair trial, so did hundreds of thousands of other people. And uh, the Court of Criminal Appeal uh, found that the uh, inculpatory statement uh, should never have been accepted by the court. And there was no other evidence. And uh, they ordered uh, my release and McNally's release. Now, as you pointed out, Nikki Kelly had uh, jumped bail a few days prior to the judgment of the Special Criminal Court which was uh, that basically I had beaten myself up. Now, they had to say that because I was never in the custody of anyone except the Gardaí, whereas McNally and Kelly uh, were in each other's company, so they were able to say that they beat each other up. But that's how ludicrous the, the argument was. But uh, I can quite understand that Nicky, uh, you know, would decide I'm not going to jail for 20 years for something I didn't do. That's quite acceptable to me. Oh yeah, I mean, and, and he subsequently came back, and and uh, while you were freed, he was serving a sentence, and he went in hunger strike ultimately, and ultimately was freed. I think it was in nineteen eighty four, so he served that longer period in prison and received a presidential pardon. Do it absolutely received a presidential pardon some years after that as well. Um, and just just a couple of things about that: the 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 fact that the court of appeal decided that the statements you had made should never have. Uh, been accepted by the court that and as you say that was practically the only evidence that was used against you that of itself one would have thought in normal circumstances 
would raise huge questions as to how those statements had been obtained from you. Yet, there was never any type of an inquiry into that subsequently. Well, the Court Appeal uh, finding was, uh, we made, I think, 19 different points. Uh, now, the, the Court of Appeal only has to find one. And if they find one, well, then you're freed. So they found that there had been oppression. And uh, there was no other evidence except the alleged statement, voluntary statement, which wasn't voluntary, obviously. And uh, yes, you would think that there would be an inquiry, aside from the fact that the Irish government had signed conventions with the United Nations, and aside from the fact that uh, they had obligations on the European Court of Human, European Convention of Human Rights. In fact, in fact, Jerry Collins, incoming Justice Minister, uh, he demanded an inquiry. So did Young Fine Gael, so did various other people. Right across the political spectrum. That's right, Fianna Fáil, prior to their elections, mm. 1977, said there should be an inquiry and they changed that position once they went into government. Yeah, and, and the reason for that is there are all, there is a, a lot of stuff that's going to come out in an inquiry beyond what happened in the bridal. Okay, and during your 17 months in prison as well, um, and your wife uh, gave birth while you were in there and you missed that whole element of family life. Uh, yeah, my uh, second son was born when I was uh, in Port Leisha, and I recall that I was misinformed as to the gender of the child. I thought it was a girl. Not that it really mattered, but yeah, a bit of a surprise. And uh, I know my wife was very uh, upset at the time, having nobody uh, with her, no, no husbands coming in, you know, to visit their child in the hospital and that. And uh, she suffered uh, quite badly from postnatal depression yeah um, and uh, to such an extent that uh, she couldn't live alone my sister had to move in with her and uh, she was terrified and uh, actually slept with a knife under her pillow and you obviously missed those early months in, in your son's and I would have been aware of all this and I would have obviously missed uh, the, the bond that's that it's made between a child and a, a parent uh, in the first few months uh, that never happened to know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. The other thing that arises there is at the time, as I understand it, um, all of the those who were classed as subversive prisoners, political prisoners or whatever one wants to call them, they were all housed in Port Leash. And there was, as I understand it, a relatively brutal regime there in how the prisoners were dealt with. And there's some suggestions that this came down from on high or whatever, but how did you find the time you spent in Port Leash those 17 months? Well, I had no problem with uh, other prisoners. Uh, I had problems with uh, a lot of the warders, not all of them, a lot of the warders uh, and uh, guards during searches and so forth. So it was uh, an oppressive uh, regime, absolutely oppressive. Uh, the slightest... Um, problems at all. They would uh, kind of, uh, institute cell searches, which meant that everything in your cell was thrown out onto the, onto the lobby of the, uh, the landing. And uh, anybody resisted in any way, even if you didn't, would get a beating. And certain people were picked out to get very bad beatings. Uh, they would destroy your personal property. Um, then there's uh, the question of visits, which were behind grills, uh, so that uh, 
you, you couldn't touch or have any contact, physical contact, even with your children. And uh, I did get two uh, visits from my wife, uh, what might be called welfare visits, and where there was no uh, grill between us and where we could uh, touch. And there was a warder there, uh, as in all visits, uh, listening in and taking notes and so forth. And if you spoke too low, they would end the visit. Or if they couldn't hear you, they'd end the visit. And uh, I know that my wife and even my newborn baby were strip-searched going into the visit and leaving. And you spent some time in solitary confinement here too? Uh, shortly after I was in jail, there was an attempted escape, of which I was not aware of. Uh, and which the prisoners apologised to me afterwards for not informing me about it on the basis that they knew I didn't want to escape. In fact, it is true that if the gates had opened, I wouldn't have walked out. I was there to uh, campaign and to show up the Special Criminal Court and to show up the guards for the treatment they were giving prisoners and society in general. It wasn't just Republicans who were being targeted now, like uh, language enthusiasts, human rights activists. Um, they were all being targeted. And uh, following the escape, um, I was thrown into solitary for two months and uh, I was uh, hauled before the governor who started to read out the sentence and then stopped himself because he realised he hadn't asked me whether I wanted to say anything or <laughs> So I asked him, you know, can I have a copy of the charges? No. Can I have a pen and paper to write down? No. Can I call any witnesses? No. Is there anything I can say other than to say I had nothing to do with the escape and I know nothing about it? And these days I said, no, now you're sentenced to two months solitary, loss of all privileges and so forth. Which meant no visits, no letters, um, very little um, recreation time, one hour uh, on my own in the prison yard. And, uh, but particularly cruel on my uh, family and wife in particular who was suffering from postnatal depression. Yeah, and subsequently, as we say, you were released by the Court of Appeal and you attempted to, to get on with your life, which quite obviously would have been very difficult following what you'd been through. You took that civil action, as did others, and ultimately the state settled with you on that action and made a financial settlement with you, which would have been in the early 90s, I think. One thing that arises there, Oscar, some people might suggest that if you wanted to expose entirely what had happened, and you quite obviously did, and on the basis of, for example, not jumping bail or whatever, and, and, and not having any attempt to, to escape from prison, but if you were determined to expose that, some people might suggest you should have gone ahead with that civil action and seen it all washed out in court, in public, what you had said had gone on, and how uh, the state had to be accountable, both in terms of the guarantee and what subsequently happened. Why did you settle if you were that determined to have it all brought into the public domain? Well, I've never heard that argument put to me. It's never been put to me that I am responsible in some way for the state not holding an inquiry. I'm not suggesting that. I'm, 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 I'm just saying that anybody who thinks like that is suggesting that I am responsible uh, for initiating a, an inquiry. I had certainly done enough by that stage to bring the case to the attention of the public. Aside from that, the civil action which I initiated in 1976, we're now in 1993, uh, the uh, state uh, is refusing uh, to uh, give any compensation 
to um, suggest any wrongdoing whatsoever. Uh, and there is the threat of um, lodgements being made to the court, which I was informed meant that if they put in a figure uh, and you get one cent less than that That's figure, correct. you end up paying all the states, not only your own, but all the states' right. legal fees, which would have meant that I would have been in debt for the rest of my life. As well as that, uh, I believed that because of all the publicity at the time, it was quite likely that there would be an inquiry. Now, subsequently, as time dragged on and there was no inquiry and all that, I'm also psychologically, I'm a human being, I'm trying to move on in my life. I'm trying to leave this behind. And at the same time, it's, it's eating away at me that uh, I'm the one who, who has all this information, that, that I'm alone in my cell with Gardaí, there's nothing else. They, they've actually said during the trial, we're not suggesting... The uh, prosecutor said, we're not suggesting that Mr. Brannock or the others were or are or were a member of an illegal organisation. We're saying that they're on the train. So I've, I've been dealing with this uh, for years and years and years. My health is deteriorated. I've had one nervous breakdown. <clears throat> and uh, it was only a few years ago uh, following continuous uh, review of the case and various aspects and coming to cul-de-sacs in a lot of them, in all of them, uh, that I discovered uh, that fraud had taken place on, on the, on the, by the state. This fraud uh, revolves around a review that was made by the DPP, that's the Director of Public Prosecutions, in relation to the Salas case in 1980. Two, in and around that time. He would have been reviewing the case periodically from 1976 right up to 1993. But anyway, in 1982, he came to the conclusion that none of us should have been charged. And this information uh, and his review was kept secreted and hidden from us. It was never made available to me during my civil case. If it had, it would have changed everything. Yeah, and there was an obligation there to discover such a review because quite obviously it was central to the case that you were bringing the state was aware of its existence. It's not a question of me requesting it and then saying, well, he didn't ask for it. It's a question of them having an obligation, the state having an obligation to furnish this information. Yes, and any such review, well, we know from other cases completely unrelated that the DPP does Sometimes in contentious cases like that, do a review. Uh, so quite obviously there was something there. Uh, I suppose it should also be acknowledged that notwithstanding even the, the personal pressure that was on you, in those cases where actions are brought against the state and very often against the Gardaí as well, huge pressure is put on plaintiffs to settle. And I think the proof of that pudding is the fact that we very rarely, hardly ever, get to see uh, any such cases aired in courts that they end up being settled. And as you say, you're, 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 from your point of view, the state has that obligation and it's not your obligation to ensure that these things are aired in public. There was also, uh, during that period, continuous harassment by the guards. I would get stopped three times a day sometimes. This was after the appeal, after you were released yes. from prison and all that? Because my civil case was still going on. You know, I was, I was blacklisted, I couldn't get work. I remember I had a job lined up. Um, a journalist was leaving his position. He trained me for it in a local 
uh, newspaper. And um, there was nobody else going for the job except me. And as soon as he mentioned my name to the editor, that was it, no. Right? Uh, I had uh, problems getting um, insurance for my car, even though I had no claims bonus and so forth. The guards would stop me and they would say, sometimes I would get so annoyed I would drive off and they'd come flying after me with their sirens blaring and they would say things like, come on, Oscar, give us your name, name and address, which they knew. Uh, this raided the house a couple of times, came to the door. I remember one of the detectives came to the door once when two trains had been robbed and wanted me to account for my movements. So it was just continuous harassment all the time. This is why the civil action was in train. This was why, exactly. As you say, as far as you're concerned, and, and there's, it's certainly there in terms of the UN Convention, there's an obligation on the government to hold an inquiry notwithstanding the length of time that has passed. The reality we've seen in other areas, unfortunately, is that unless there is a serious pressure put on, governments will shy away opening up an inquiry into this sort of thing. Do you think that there's a, a good possibility that they will go ahead with an inquiry? Do you think that there's any political pressure there to do so? And in the absence of that, what chances do you think that it will actually occur? It's essentially uh, a political decision. You're right there. And uh, but the political circumstances uh, change. Uh, the truth will out. I am absolutely certain that there will be an inquiry at some stage. Uh, and I'm absolutely certain that uh, if the government has anything to do with the inquiry, that they will do their best uh, to fudge it and to uh, reduce the terms of reference and all the rest of it. But I'm not going to uh, be party to any of that. There will be a growing uh, pressure on them to respond. That's why I brought her to the UN. And as governments change into the future and as more information becomes available, there will be more of an inclination to hold the necessary inquiry. And you've mentioned the UN. What are the next steps in relation to the UN? Well, I'm just about ready to... Uh, it may actually be go in before you broadcast, but uh, I'm in the process of uh, finalising a a uh, petition to the United Nations through uh, KRW Law, um, a Belfast firm, a Belfast-based firm, but who do international cases, and uh, who are representing some of the hooded men and so forth. And uh, that will be lodged with the UN, and then they will deal with whatever their process is. One other thing that arises, and you'll be well aware of it, is recently uh, the British government's position that they want to um, bring in legislation that will effectively create an amnesty for everything that happened in the North. And I think they're quite open about the fact, as far as they're concerned, they don't want uh, British soldiers or, or personnel from the armed forces being charged with historical crimes, and it's being opposed by all the political parties in the North and by the Irish government, it should be said. However, if they go through with that, and I think it's scheduled perhaps to do so in October, will that make it less likely that the government down here will be willing to open an inquiry? Well, the Irish government is uh, supporting all the political parties in the North in opposing that proposed uh, British uh, amnesty. Uh, 
But it's absolutely hypocritical because the Irish government response uh, to torture in the 26 counties has been not to talk about it and to ignore it and giving a de facto amnesty to the guards and anyone else who was involved in torture down here in instigating or covering up torture and so forth. So it's up to journalists like you to put uh, questions to the government, to force them to respond, because their attitude uh, so far has been basically, they say nothing. When they say nothing, what do you report? Other than to say there is a de facto amnesty for all the guards and anyone else who was involved in the torture. Right, and just finally, Oscar, what happened to you and the others at the time? It was a different time. It was a different country in a lot of ways, um, in so many ways. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you think the same thing could happen again today? I am. Um, first of all, it's, it's not something that happened in 1976. As far as I'm concerned, it's still happening. Every morning I wake up, there is no inquiry. I'm being told my rights don't matter. I'm not an important Irish citizen. I have no rights. I don't have those rights. Uh, so it's still going on, as far as I'm concerned. Could it happen again in the same sense? Absolutely, 100%. And uh, if we had the time and you put forward a case uh, and I was to pretend to be the guard or the chief superintendent in charge of the case and I wanted to frame you using... All the legislation that's passed over the years, I could bring you right through it and I could show you how you could be framed. Right, we'll do that someday. Oscar Brannock, thank you very much for talking to me today. My pleasure. That's it, folks. Um, I think it's a, a fascinating case. It'll be interesting to see where it goes, if it goes anywhere, at this late stage. But quite obviously, Oscar Brannock is a man who believes that uh, an inquiry is warranted and it has to be stated that he is not alone in that belief. A number of other high-profile figures, as I mentioned earlier, are also of that opinion, having examined nothing more than the actual facts of the case. If you want to know anything more about this case, uh, you can read about it at the website salinsinquirynow.ie. That's it for today. Uh, I'd like to thank, as always, our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. As you know, you can find the podcast on all the usual platforms. See you next week and take care.